I, I know that's probably totally ruined wherever I go with my sermon here in a little bit, but for those of you that don't know, if you don't know Haley and my story, uh, we, have, we have struggled with infertility for about six and a half years now. And so uh, we've had, I was trying to count it the other day, and I'm not really sure, somewhere in the realm of 50 to 60 negative pregnancy tests in the last six and a half years. And so we had opened up the prospects of um, what's, what's called embryo adoption, and you guys have walked through that with us, many of you. Uh, we, we lost our first two embryos in June from that, and it was a really tough time. And so we were getting ready to start another one. And uh, nothing like having a hiccup in your program than being pregnant, uh, just by chance. Uh, so two weeks ago during our business meeting, I stood up here during my like, pastoral report and I just said, guys, I don't know. 2022 has been one of those years where I feel like everything I've planned, nothing has gone accordingly. Like Nothing has gone like I've planned it to. And looking back, I just think God was laughing, just at me and my life and everything in the most incredible way as only God can. So we wanted to share that with you. We are still early in the stages. Uh, Haley's about seven weeks right now, a little bit over. And so we still are going to Dallas tomorrow to do some more uh, tracking things and another sonogram to make sure things are progressing. Uh, so if you would just join us in praying that things were safe and secure and good. We are so excited for what God is doing, but I would be lying to you if I said there wasn't some anxiety that dwelt with that as well. So uh, thank you for that. We wanted to share that with you. And now I'm going to make probably the worst transition into my sermon that's ever existed. Go to your Bibles to Second Chronicles chapter 28. All year, for the past 12 months, we've been focusing on these kind of five core values as a church. And so what we've kind of set up in this year through 2022 uh, is that every sermon series has pointed back to one of these key five purposes. That we as a church exist and each color is representative of a different value. So green is life-giving. We want to be a life-giving church. Red is gospel-rooted. White is spirit-filled. Blue is community. And orange, still haven't settled on a color for that all year, is uh, belong. And so the way this has kind of worked this year is anyone in the church, visitor, long-term member, otherwise, if you have felt uh, like the church has fulfilled one of these things in a story, something personal to you, then you come and move one of these markers into the tube in front of it. There's a basket behind it. And then we kind of keep track throughout the year. So every little marble in each one of these tubes is a testimony to a story that's happened here at First Baptist where First Baptist has been life-giving or gospel-rooted or spirit-filled. And it's been really cool just kind of emphasizing those types of things all year because we believe that our calling as God's people is not to just put people in pews, that's not our purpose, but to join with God, to join them with God in a way of putting hope in lives. That far more important than people in pews is hope in lives. This is why Jesus came, salvation to the world. And so we believe that to do that effectively, all, all of these five values must be at play. If you take out any one of these, if you have a church that's gospel-rooted and spirit-filled and communal and they belong to one another, but they don't give life, they're, they're hateful and rude. Number one, I would question if they're even spirit-filled to begin with. But number two, they're never going to be the church the way God intended to be the church. If you have life-giving and community and belong, but you take out gospel-rooted, then we're just a country club. And that's fine and whatever, but the church exists for something more. It's the story of God coming to save humanity. So this is what we've been focusing on for the entire last 12 months. 
But here's the question. Can a church strongly hold to these building blocks and still experience decline or still experience stagnation? Furthermore, what is it that really determines whether or not a church is in decline or stagnant or they're being renewed? What is it that determines these types of things? And like your cousin's relationship status on Facebook, I think the answer is it's complicated. Because there's a lot going into this to determine when is something pioneering, when is it growing, when is it stagnating, when is it declining. And so for most of my Christian life, I, I was saved at 14 September 2005. For most of my life since I've been saved, I've been told, hey, Philip, the church is just getting smaller. It's in decline. There are less younger pastors now than older pastors. The millennials are leaving church. Gen Z are leaving even faster than the millennials left. I mean, the statistics show it. You've probably seen bar graphs like, like this one before. This is a bar graph from 1952 to 2012 uh, from the Aggregate Religiosity Index that was made in 2014. And just the average attendance of church in the last 60 years in America. And this trend with it has brought some desperation plays uh, from the church. Desperation play after desperation play to try and reverse the trend. The church has thought things like, well, if we can just be more relevant, if we can become more contemporary, if we play the right music and avoid those topics and blur those lines and compromise some of those more controversial doctrines, then maybe we can reverse this trend. And in the last 15 years or 20 years or so, we've seen some successes in great ways. And we've seen some really devastating failures. But here, here's the thing. It's not just the church. Here's a line graph that's just showing you Rotary Club's attendance for the last 13 years. This is actually in 2009. It's went down since 2009. So the Rotary Club's trajectory matches the church trajectory. We've talked about this before. It's actually the same with bowling leagues. Bowling leagues have been going down because no one signs up to bowl anymore. In fact, Experts are looking at that and saying, really, it's anything that demands some sort of commitment. An in-person, I have to show up to this group, these people commitment. Anything that demands that style of life does not result in growth right now. It just keeps going less and less as people stay in their homes more and more. And I would also just add in, too, you can take that graphic down, Kelsey. I would add in, too, furthermore, this isn't the first time the church has experienced this type of trajectory. If we look at history, we actually find the church has done this movement before, and we can look back and see how did God change it? What reversed in that revival is usually what we call it, or enlightenment, or what I'm going to use is the word renewal. And when we start to look at those over the history of the church, and really even biblical renewal in the Old Testament with the nation of Israel, there's some patterns that we have to start unpacking. Patterns that I think ring true, even for organizations and movements and nations outside of the church. Because this is an obsession that we have. There are professions out there dedicated, people that make more money than I could even imagine, dedicated to trying to figure out when is an organization pioneering, when's it growing, when's it in decline, when's it stagnating. We have podcasts and YouTube channels dedicated to stuff like this. Is, is this the fall of the Alabama football dynasty? One could only hope, right? Like that's what that, just joking. Is that company the Netflix killer? Is Facebook meta enough to save the dying platform? I mean, does the Marvel Cinematic Universe have anywhere to go after Endgame? Or is it just going to keep getting worse? 
People are trying to figure that out. The college students understood that at least, so that's, that's good. So I've been reading and studying over this for the last four or five months, trying to get an idea on what does it mean to move something from decline to renewal? What does it mean to be the church in this model? And I came across a book called uh, The um, um, Reappearing Church by an author named Mark Sayers. And so I'm stealing a lot of this from him. I want to give him credit for that. Um, But he came up with this kind of bell curve model uh, that's a rough, hyper-generalized model to try to give some sort of vision on the generational development of an industry, a corporation, a business, a nation, a church, on the growth model. And what he does is he divides it up in what he calls five different generations. And so you start with generation one, and this is your pioneering generation. This is your generation of people that they start the business in their garage. This is the generation of people that move from Europe to America in the early days of America. They leave their family and farm behind to come start a new life here in America. This is the church plant. This is the missionary that goes and reaches the unreached people group. This is the pioneering generation. They have a vision of something better. They choose a different way, and with them, they carry this ethic of sacrifice. They know deeply instilled into them that you can never build anything from comfort. So this is your athlete that just won the championship. And you ask him, what did you do to win? And he or she says, I've been up at 3 o'clock every morning training. It's the ethic of sacrifice to build something new. And after that first generation starts the process of pioneering, they usually pass down that work ethic into the second generation. So the second generation comes in, and they grow, they grow up with the sacrifice. And they want that memory of how it was done passed down, so they tell the stories. They set up the traditions and the rules and the norms, not in an attempt to control or limit what's happening, but in an attempt to maintain the direction the first generation started. To maintain those patterns that led to flourishing and to keep those patterns intact. They want to maintain what was built. And they may tinker and improve things a little bit, but they have this ethic of of service. They're serving what the first generation started. Serving that great thing that's being built. And then generation three comes under them. And generation three is standing on the shoulders of giants. They come into a world where they've just lived the good life. They've enjoyed the spoils of what the first two generations built. And the danger that then comes with that is they develop an ethic of assumption. They assume that things have always been this good. For them, that comfort that the first and second generation built, that's normal. And so that's just what life is like. And so they land with this sense of entitlement. And I don't mean that to be like, ah, these people, they're so entitled. I mean that just to say they get to have the good stuff without any of the responsibility. So they expect good stuff with no responsibility. And the problem is, when a generation assumes something, what one generation assumes, the next generation neglects. So generation four comes in, and they've not been trained in the way of generation one and generation two. So what they thought was normal, they then go into neglect. The patterns set by the first and second generation are ignored. There's a corruption of the things that were built. Things begin collapsing in. There's eternal division. There's corruption. There's brokenness. And eventually, after they essentially run everything into the ground, a fifth generation comes in, and it's the generation of grief. 
They mourn what once was, and they're faced with this decision. Do we just bury it, or do we try to restart it? Do we bury this business? Do we say Blockbuster has run its course, and we just need to be done with it? Or do we try to start something new? And I would just ask, where are we? Where's the church? And to some extent, I mean, where's First Baptist Portalis? But also, to a greater extent, where, where is the American church as a whole on this trajectory? Because I don't think we're in one or two. Maybe some could argue three, but if not, if we're in three, we're on the very kind of right edge of it, if not full-blown in fourth generation, I think. And you may disagree with me, and that's totally fine. But I would say if we look back, we're, we feel like we've been tracking this idea that we no longer have the influence we once had. And so we want to figure out why, why is the decline? What's happening? Is it that the church has lost relevance? And I would just say, what if the decline is not a commentary on our lack of relevance, but a commentary on our lack of faith? What if God, doing what he's done in the past, is bringing us to a point of faithful desperation where the only option we have is to give up our plans, our programs, our traditions, our tendencies, our whatever, and bring it to the throne of God seeking his face and his face alone. What if God is actually looking to change the trajectory? He's just waiting for us to get on board with him. What does that look like? And I would then walk that a couple steps further and say, well, what if this pattern right here is not just a pattern representative of the church, but it's indicative of our culture as a whole. And this is where I have the tendency to get in like old man mode and like, oh, the culture these days, it's so broken. I'm not trying to do that. But just watch the news and look around. It doesn't take too much to see there's rising inequality between rich and poor. There's distance and gaps between the elites and the everyday people. There's hyperinflation of loneliness and social disconnection, despite being more connected than we've ever been before. There's this burgeoning crisis of meaning, despite being hyper-affluent in our society. There's this increase in social fractures and conflicts. There's disruptive effects of technology on our environment and our health. There's this growing threat of full-scale war and nuclear conflict in our multipolar, hyperpolarized world. And if I could just point you to like an indicator of that, have you went and looked at lyrics from songs that have topped the chart in the last year? And this is, again, where the old man comes, ah, oh, music these days is so bad. I'm not trying to make that point. I just want you to understand when a music tops the charts, it's because it's resonating with a generation. So six on the chart last year, a song called Serotonin by The Girl in Red. I'm running low on serotonin, chemical imbalancing got me twisting things, stabilize it with medicine. I get intrusive thoughts like cutting my hands off, like jumping in front of a bus, like how do I make it stop when I feel like my therapist hates me? Please don't let me be cra go crazy, but the only thing that can save me is me. That's number six. I, I got another one actually, one of the college students reminded me of it this morning. So, numb, numb little bug. I don't feel a single thing. Have the pills done too much? I haven't caught up with my friends in weeks, and now we're out of touch. I've been driving around L.A., and the world feels like it's too big, like a floating ball that's bound to break, snap my psyche like a twig, and I just want to see if you feel the same. Do you ever get a little bit tired of life? Like you're really happy, but you, like you're not really happy, but you don't want to die. Like you're hanging by a thread, but you got to survive. Like your body's in the room, but you're not really there. Like your empathy inside, but you don't really care. Like you're fresh out of love, but it's in the air. Am I past repair? It just goes on. 
And again, don't hear me saying, like, music these days is so bad. I can't believe this generation. That's not my point. My point is to say, is there something indicative that the world around us is suffering from the exact same thing? They just can't put their pulse on it yet. They can't place their thumb on what's really happening. See, I believe it's not just the church that's growing desperate for renewal. Our whole world sees the need. But the problem is, they see the need, and then they attempt to solve it on their own, rather than trusting in the only one that can fix it. And it just breaks more. So could this be the time, then, when the church appears to be sliding into unalterable decline, when the culture seems to be shaken by upheaval, when the world is globalizing and opening up all these new frontiers of fostering chaos and change and uncertainty? Might this be the moment when God wants to move again? What's he doing? What is it that moves a fourth or fifth generation back into a pioneering generation? What is it that moves a fourth or fifth generation church organization from decline to removal? And again, I would just remind you that this is not the first time the church has been in this position. We, we like to think that there's this idea that sometime back in the medieval ages, uh, everyone was Christian no matter what, and things were really good. And, you know, yeah, you had to go outside to go to the bathroom. But things were good because everyone was Christian, and it's just been on this steady decline since then. But the Great Awakening of the 1700s says that's not the case. The Jesus movement of the 1970s says that's not the case. There have been plenty of times where God comes in to a declining church, puts a movement within it, renews it, and we call it revival. This is not the first time God has been in this position. In fact, it's even in the Old Testament. So if you've not gone to 2 Chronicles, go ahead and turn there. We're going to talk about the story of King Ahaz's transition to King Hezekiah. In fact, if you heard last week, we actually mentioned this story last week, talking about Psalm 78. This week, what I want to do is I just want to dive into the story. I can't read the whole thing. There's way too much text, so I'm going to hit some highlights going through the story. But to talk about how Israel was renewed under the reign of King Hezekiah, and we see this pattern of renewal unfold. This pattern that had been repeated before and has been repeated many times after this, but this just kind of gives some biblical teeth to what this pattern does. So again, just, just to remind you, I didn't come up with this. I stole this from Mark Sayers in his book, Reappearing Church. If you're interested in it, you can go read. Uh, but I did put the text in it because I think the text really, really matters so let's start, chapter 28, verses 1 through 3. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. He did not do what was right in the lies, uh, sight of the Lord, like his ancestor David. For he walked in the ways, um, for he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel and made cast images for the Baals. He burned incense in Ben-Hinnom Valley and burned his children in the fire, imitating the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had dispossessed before the Israelites. So whole, gener or whole chapter right here in chapter 28 dedicated to Ahaz's reign. And the first three verses really kind of set us the tone. And this is the point that it's not just that Israel's in decline. By the way, this first arrow is a state of decline. But it's not just that Israel is in decline, it's that they are all the way down in the pit. By the way, if, if you don't like visuals and graphs, you hate the sermon today, I'm so sorry. If you like visuals and graphs, I have so many of them today. But Israel's in full-fledged pit of decline. 
their own king is worshiping idols and practicing child sacrifice. And if it's normal for their king, I would just remind you it's normal for their kingdom. So it's not just the king sacrificing babies, it's Israel in its entirety sacrificing babies. And if you go down to verse 24, it gives us a little bit more information. It says, And Ehaz gathered up the utensils of God's temple, cut them into pieces, shut the door of the Lord's temple, and made himself altars on every street corner in Jerusalem. Now to us, we read this, and it's just some lines in the Bible about an ancient time that we can't even, even picture in our minds. But this is a picture of the kingdom Hezekiah grows up in. I mean, just try to put yourself in Hezekiah's shoes. Imagine the weight of knowing your dad burned your baby brothers and sisters alive to the sacrifice of these other gods. To think about what would have life been like had my brother survived. And it's not just Hezekiah. It's an entire generation of Israelites that grow up knowing that there should be more people, but there's not because of these false idols that these people have sacrificed babies to wondering what the world may be like if things were different, what your relationships with them would have been like, seeing that the majestic temple that once towered over the city is now shut and empty and on every street corner is altars to your father and the gods responsible for convincing these people to sacrifice their own children. Wondering what may have been different had Israel stayed true to Yahweh. This marches Hezekiah directly into the first step of renewal. And it starts with holy discontent. 29 verse 3. Let me just start in verse 1. Hezekiah was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abijah, daughter of Zechariah, and he did what was right in the Lord's sight, just as his ancestor David has done. In the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the Lord's temple and repaired them. So verse 3 tells us, how soon does Hezekiah implement this renewal? The second he takes the throne. The second he comes to the throne, he says, no, we're done with this. We're reopening the temple. Nothing does that like holy discontent. And he brought the priests and the Levites, and he gathered them in the eastern public square, and he said to them, Hear me, Levites, consecrate yourselves now, and consecrate the temple of the Lord, the God of your ancestors. Remove everything impure from the holy place, for our fathers were unfaithful. They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord our God. They abandoned him, turned their faces away from the Lord's dwelling place, and turned their backs on him. They also closed the doors of the portico, extinguished the lamps, did not burn incense, and did not offer burnt offerings in the holy place of God. Of Israel. Therefore, the wrath of the Lord was on Judah and Jerusalem, and he made them an object of terror, horror, and mockery. As you see with your own eyes, our fathers fell by the sword, and our sons, our daughters, and our wives are in captivity because of this. It is in my heart now to make a covenant with the Lord, the God of Israel, so that his burning anger may turn away from us. My sons, don't be negligent now. For the Lord has chosen you to stand in his presence, to serve him, to be ministers and burners of incense. The first year, the first month, Hezekiah comes to the throne and says, I can't stomach this anymore. I can't let us be like this. The text seems to suggest that the second he takes the throne, he starts preparations to change the culture of the country he leads. Nothing fosters that, that type of change like holy discontent. 
that deep satisfaction or that deep dissatisfaction with the low state of faith, the low state of God's people, the low state of the culture. It's, it's the point when the world's injustices and the world's brokenness and the world's lostness becomes not just out there that, yeah, the world out there is broken, but it becomes painfully real even here. That I suffer because of the brokenness of the world. That you suffer because of the brokenness of the world. And, and it's not this like critical, nitpicky, snobbery. Did you see what she was wearing? I can't believe they let her. I can't believe they, he'd let us sing a song like that in church. Who picked the color of that carpet? I, it's not that. That's not holy discontent. That's complaining. That's not what the Bible's talking about. This idea of holy discontent. It's this desperate longing to look at the world and say the world is not supposed to be this way. And it doesn't matter if you're Christian or you're atheist and as secular as secular can be, almost everyone is currently looking at the world saying the world is not supposed to be this way. Well, why? The only reason we can know that is if there's a standard of perfection that sets itself up and says it's not supposed to be this way because there's a better way. We can only find that better way in the reality of God. So holy discontent is this desperate longing to see the full potential and power of God on display within the world. And it's that desperation that takes us directly to the throne of God, asking him to change us. God, we're not capable of changing this. We need your help. And it leads us to a phase of preparation. Verse 16 through 17, Hezekiah goes to the priests and the Levites, and he says, start consecrating yourself. We're reopening this temple. And the priests went to the entrance, verse 16, of the Lord's temple to cleanse it. They took all the unclean things they had found in the Lord's sanctuary to the courtyard of the Lord's temple. And the Levites received them and took them outside to the Kidron Valley. They take them out of the city. They throw them in a trash dump. They say, we can't stomach this anymore. And then they began the consecration on the first day of the first month. Oh, by the way, when did they do this? Right at the beginning. The second Hezekiah takes the throne, he says, get up there and get all this stuff out. We have to change this. So they do it the first day of the first month. And on the eighth day of the month, they came to the portico of the Lord's temple. And then they consecrated the Lord's temple for eight days. And on the 16th day of the first month, they finished. For over two weeks, they spend time cleaning out the temple. Day after day, moment after moment of preparation saying, God, we can't stomach this. We need you to do something greater. In fact, we'll later read that this is actually technically the time they're supposed to be celebrating Passover. But obviously they couldn't do Passover without the temple, so they first had to prepare. And, and it's easy to then see this as some sort of program that they're running. Like, oh, we've got to clean out the temple for Passover. But understand that holy discontent doesn't lead to programs or campaigns for change. It leads to transformation of the heart. It leads to quiet moments of prayer, sincere times of moving towards God in the personal, private place of God. Israel's no longer comparing themselves to what used to be or what their neighbors are like. I mean, they could have easily got the temple cleaned out and said, well, we're already better than the Philistines, so let's just be done with all of that. That's not their intention here. Preparation is not looking to our sides to see if we're better than that person or bigger than that church or if our budget is a little bit more padded. Or that, That's not what preparation is. Preparation is looking to the perfection of God's eternal holiness and saying, I don't match that. And then becoming broken over our own sin. And preparing things to change. 
And it's that preparation that then eventually leads us from a state of consumption to a state of contending. We move from consuming to contending. We move from trying to make God about us, thinking that the church is about what we get from it, this consumer mentality of me, to a state of contending. So for Hezekiah, this this meant missing the Passover in the traditional sense and then still planning Passover to happen. So chapter 29 or chapter 30, verses 1 through 3, then Hezekiah sent word throughout all of Israel and Judah, and he wrote letters to Ephraim and Manasseh to come to the Lord's temple in Jerusalem to observe Passover of the Lord, the God of Israel. For the king and his officials and the entire congregation of Jerusalem decided to observe Passover of the Lord in the second month because they were not able to deserve it at the appropriate time. Not enough of the priests had consecrated themselves and the people hadn't gathered into Jerusalem. Contending is when we just kind of throw tradition out the window. Not that tradition's bad, but we say, look, we got stuff we got to figure out. So tradition flies out the window because everything shifts to intentionality. And it seems silly, but Hezekiah could have easily said, well, we missed Passover this year, but we'll go ahead and have Passover next year. What's the next holiday? Yom Kippur? Day of Atonement? Well, that was a bigger one anyways. We'll just get ready for Yom Kippur here in a couple months. Let's not worry about Passover this year. We'll take care of it next year. But Hezekiah can't stand for that. Because for him, the holiday is not about consumption and having a feast for fun and feel good. For him, it's about contending. It's fighting for life with God. It's moving from consumption in this idea that we move from a passive faith to fighting, stretching, making ourselves uncomfortable in a desire to see the presence of God come with power. And when it comes to this point that we realize our lives, our faith, our church, our culture cannot be changed by anything but the presence of God, that's when we start to go to the mat for it. That's when we start to go to God's throne for it and beg in a prayerful, crying out for our church, our town, our nation, our world, we begin to contend for what God would have happen in this world. And it's that contending that starts to develop then within us holy patterns, from holy discontent to holy patterns. You go to verse 18, he invites everyone in. They come into Jerusalem, but they're so far separated from God that they don't even know the right practices to get themselves ready. Verse 18, a large number of the people, many from Ephraim and Manasseh, Issachar and Zebulun, were ritually uncleaned. Yet they had eaten the Passover contrary to what was written. So they're not even following the law. They're so desperate for God that they don't know what it says, but they want God in their lives. So they eat the Passover even when they're not clean. But Hezekiah had interceded for them saying, may the good Lord provide atonement on behalf of whoever sets his whole heart on seeking God the Lord, the God of his ancestors, even though it's not according to the purification rules of the sanctuary. So Hezekiah comes in and he says, God, we can't figure this out. We're so far broken. We need your help. And this pattern begins to emerge. A pattern that declares that true atonement, true ritual cleansing comes not from just obeying a set of rules. They'd already messed all of that up, but on trusting God by setting their whole heart on him. That atonement comes through faith. I don't know if we heard that in the Bible before. It's what Jesus does. It's the whole point of the gospel. It's the whole point of Christ coming. He's saying, you can't keep the commands, so I will bring you atonement at one minute. That's at at one minute, atonement. I can bring you that. By just believing in me, by setting your heart on me. 
See, when I talk about holy patterns, I'm not saying some legalistic set of rules that are going to weigh us down. I'm talking about setting our hearts on God and then letting that direction change our action, allowing God to do the healing as we just reorient our lives around his truths, his word, his presence, his power. And as he moves, and as more and more people start to see him move, it begins to form a remnant of people that say, whatever the world's doing, I want no part of, I have to exist for you. God, my heart is set on your heart. I'm following you. Look at verse 20. Or he says, he goes on saying verse 20, so the Lord heard uh, Hezekiah and he healed the people. And we jump down to verse 25, and then the whole assembly of Judah with the priests and Levites and the whole assembly that came from Israel, the resident aliens who came from the land of Israel and those who were living in Judah rejoiced. There's a remnant. What begins as one king's dissatisfaction and the brokenness of his city develops into the whole assembly of Judah coming back to God. Now, it's not always that big. In fact, sometimes it feels like almost the opposite. Sometimes it feels like the remnant falls to a faithful few, a small group of people dedicated to God and his ways. But I'm telling you, when that remnant takes up the mantle of discomfort and awkwardness, when they regain that ethic of the first generation sacrifice, and they begin to live life differently than those around them, that remnant begins to start renewal that we can read verses like verse 26. And there was great rejoicing in Jerusalem for nothing like this was known since the days of Solomon, son of David, the king of Israel. The nation of Israel hadn't seen anything like this from the time the temple was built. And it starts because Hezekiah can't stomach the state of his culture. So where are we? We've asked that question twice today. Where are we on, on the bell chart? And where are we on this renewal process? Are we discontent or are we just kind of, whatever, apathetic? Are we preparing for God to do something or are we like, well, just, we'll just fit the trends, do the cultural Christian thing, come to church when it's convenient and not worry about it outside of that? Uh, are, are we consuming or are we contending? Are we coming to church? What did I get out of church today? I'm only here because I like the music. I don't like the music, so I'm gonna go to this. Or are we contending? Are we practicing holy patterns, not for the sake of legalism, but because we are desperate to see God move, and so we want to chase after his heart? Are we forming that remnant to get ready for renewal? Because do you know what happens when renewal goes viral? We change the word from renewal to revival. This is what God wants to do. So where are we? So often we think we're the ones that have to fix this. And this is where the gospel comes in, and it just demolishes everything we think? Because I hope you understand this, church. It's not our children's program that will save this town. It's not our programming, our ability, our assets, our money. It's not me, it's not talent, it's not music. None of that is what saves. It is only God. That's it. There's no other option. So what if it's God that we need to come back to and he's saying, I want you here because this is your moment. This is my moment within you. There's a book by James Byrne. It's called The Laws of Revival. And here's what he says, and I'll just end with this, and we'll have a time of reflection as we worship. He says this. This is the time of spiritual, he said, this time of spiritual deadness 
has its definite limits. The wave of spiritual progress may recede, but in receding it is gathering power and volume to return, to rush in further. God has a set limit on the defection of his church, and when the night is at its darkest, the dawn is on its way. The dawn's coming. Are we ready? Are you ready? Maybe you got to start by just knowing the gospel to begin with, to set your heart on God for the first time and to experience the forgiveness of sins. I'll be right here to pray with you. I'd love to pray with you about that. But maybe you need to look at that and say, what is it that starts to change? Am I discontent? Am I ready to move from consuming to contending? If you want to come up and pray about that, you can come up and pray about it. Next week, we'll go into this a little bit more, talking about what are the ingredients of renewal. But for today, I want you to ask, what's the stage of renewal? Where are we? Where are you? Father God, thank you for what you've said is true in your word. God, for bringing us tastes of your power in ways that we never could have expected or known. God, for seeing you move in ways that we didn't even plan for. But God, I pray that we would see that starting in our individual lives, but see that start to unfold into this world that desperately needs it. A world that is trapped in its own hopelessness and bitterness and brokenness. God, let us not be a church that sets in here with the answers and complains about how broken they are, but a church that is mobilized and goes out to see them. God, may we be discontent about the brokenness of our world and it leads us to a holy desire for you. God, may we start to prepare for you to move, getting things ready to know that you're starting something new again. God, let us not be a church that wants to just consume, but let us be a church that contends for who you are and what you do. God, help us to know and love you in all of that. God, let us establish these holy patterns, prayer, getting our minds in the Bible, not for the sake of legalism, but for the sake of knowing you. And God, let the remnant that exists here at First Baptist Portalis join together and take on that first generation ethic of sacrifice that we might see you move. Let us be your church. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.